This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Sophie McNeil, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me. I really do think it's such a privilege that we've got you here today. Um, I spotted this book on our review list and I was really desperate to get you in here, so thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Um, For those of you that don't know who Sophie is, she's an investigative reporter for Four Corners, a former foreign correspondent based in the Middle East for the ABC. She's worked across the region, including in countries such as Afghanistan, Israel, Iraq, Pakistan, Syria, Yemen, Egypt, Turkey and Gaza. Sophie has twice been awarded Young TV Journalist of the Year and in 2010 she won a Walkley Award for her investigation into the killing of five children in Afghanistan by Australian Special Forces and soldiers. Sophie was nominated for a Walkley in 2015 for her coverage of the Syrian refugee crisis. Sophie previously worked as a reporter for ABC's Foreign Correspondent and SBS's Dateline program and is a former host of Triple J News and Current Affairs program Hack. We Can't Say We Didn't Know is her first book, telling the very human stories of devastation and hope behind the headlines, the stories of children, families, refugees, brave doctors and those who are bearing the brunt of lawlessness. And so, so powerful. I enjoyed, I haven't (laughs) finished it because it isn't a one-seat read, as you probably know, but it is extraordinarily written and it is... Um, unusual in terms for me that a journalist wrote it because it's got a bit of heart, it's got emotion, <laughs> and not that I'm saying that journalists don't, but usually they, they take a back to take seat. it out of us. Yeah, you know? they, they, they do. do. Um, I think too much so. Yeah. Whereas for me, it's no one is just a story. You know, they're all people, and like you couldn't make this stuff up. The the, the things that people endured, the bravery they exhibited, the, the courage. You know, it sounds like a movie. Some of the mm some of the things that happen in the book, but it's all real. And just for me, it's like a tribute to the brave, courageous people I met in the Middle East. But it's like a bad movie, isn't it? It, it is confronting some of it, but I guess I always look to the amazing people in the book um, that, that, you know, keep me going on because I've been, yeah, I've been doing this work now for 17 years and I've you, know, you don't I've, look old enough, Sophie. <laughs> I started when I was 18 <laughs> and I'm now 35 and I'm yes. very tired. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you, you, the reason I keep going because sometimes it can be very disheartening is just because you meet so many inspiring, brave people mm. and, you know, what I have endured or whatever is like not even 1% of what they've gone through. You know, as a yeah. journalist, you're lucky. You have an Australian passport, you go in there and you go out of there. Whereas these people, some of them, I mean, a lot of people in the book, they're trapped. They have no escape, you know, in no. Gaza, in Yemen, in parts of Syria. So I'm the luckiest one, you know, often in that kind of scenario. So, yeah, you never, 
you know, you always look at them and think, wow, they got through it. They're amazing. And so the the book is really inspiring, I think. I want to start when all this hatred began. I feel that for a long time, we were, the bad guys were the Russians. You know, mm. when I grew up, um, it was, and you know, this translates to what we see in terms of movies and what we read. And the Russians were positioned as the bad guys forever. And then somehow that changed to be Arab. Do you, mm. do you think that that's true? And I'm trying to work out when that was. Look, I think um, that, you know, I was at high school when September 11 happened and that really shaped my world. But my response was I wanted to go to the Middle East and report because, you know, the Iraq war happened and, you know, Bush invaded and all this. And But I I think in some parts of the world people had opposite reactions and became, you know, really scared of the Middle East and of Islam. And and I think that... Yeah, um, you might be right. That might uh, have know, been the turning Depictions point. in movies and TV shows and... Um, you know, the reason I've spent so many years living in the Middle East and going back there is because they are the loveliest, warmest, most welcoming people. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm, I'm often embarrassed actually when I'll, have, like, have Arab friends in Australia or, you know, Syrian friends and we don't have any kind of same level of hospitality, mm. the way that we treat guests. or so, you know, like, we're friendly but not to the extent that Arabs are. I mean, they're, they're out of this world. So, mm. yeah, yeah. Um, I just love that part of the world and love mm. the people there. Um, I want to go back to, to that time and I want to talk about Dick Cheney. Sure, I saw the movie Vice recently, but I think the weapons of mass destruction was the biggest con we've ever seen. Mm. Um, and we decimated a region over that. Mm. I mean, the the effect of that war had huge repercussions um, in the Middle East, what the Iraq war did, not, not just to Iraq, but to that whole region. And part of the problem with Syria and what's happened in the past decade is that the memories of how the American exercise in Iraq went so badly prevented Obama from taking any action in Syria. And so there was a lot of fear of, of what happens when you intervene because it went so badly in Iraq. And, and Afghanistan. I mean, that that is another conflict uh, uh, started by Bush. That. I think a lot of people wouldn't even know the difference between Afghanistan and Iraq and what happened um, with the Twin Towers. I mean, you know, that whole time was so blurred with misinformation that people thought that we were invading Iraq because of the Twin Towers. Yeah, it, it, I think... There has always been a lot of misinformation about the Middle East and, you know, now we have this term disinformation, the deliberate um, spread of wrong information and that's certainly something that we've seen in the conflict in Syria. Um, but there's a lot of lessons, I think, to be learnt looking back in the last 10 years in the Middle East and uh, that, that question of if we had intervened in Syria, could we have saved so many lives is something that, you know, Syrians ask every day. Um, there has been more than half a million Syrians killed. In fact, mm. the UN has stopped counting. They officially stopped counting because so many were being killed and they couldn't keep track. Mm. It's, it's, a devastating, a it's a devastating conflict that has really um, changed the, the power dynamics in the Middle East. The US has retreated. 
Russia is now, they're being very evil. They're back to the way the movies were in the 60s and 70s and, and the 80s and and they're doing horrific things. Um, and same with Iran. And and it's not it's not just that side. You also have the Saudis now and what they're doing in Yemen. So when you're a journalist there... And you have, there, you know, what's happening in... Uh in uh, the Gaza with Israel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my job really was to document the war crimes committed by everyone in Gaza, in Syria, in Yemen, in Iraq. I mean, the, the worst bit is that there aren't any, there, there aren't kind of any, um, yeah, honourable <laughs> coalitions at the moment in the Middle East. It's all very um, disturbing. And the book, a large theme of the book, is this idea that all the rules have been broken. You know, we had a lot of hope in the in the noughties that um, after Bosnia, after Rwanda, that you know we could we would stop crimes against humanity. That we'd come up with a system to to prevent this from happening again. We developed the International Criminal Court. We developed the the responsibility to protect all these notions of you know international law and. Unfortunately, on the ground in the Middle East the last few years, they've just proven to be theories. You know, the rule book's been thrown out the window and, you know, set on fire. Um, and that's really what I document in this book and how it's not just one side. You know, the what happens in Gaza, what happens in Syria, what happens in Yemen, it's all sides. And civilians are always the ones trapped in the middle. You know, you could say that that's global now, couldn't you? I mean, it's yes, there's the Middle East, but you look at the political situation globally at the moment and it is, you know, there is a sense of, you know, for some reason conservatism is always full of fear and hatred and you think that that's where we're at at the moment, isn't it? Well, the subtitle of the book is Dispatches from an Age from the Age of Impunity and I feel like this age of impunity is, is now occurring all over. You know, I think President Trump's administration has has really helped lead to this terrible environment where facts are disputed. You know, there just yeah. used to be a time where there was evidence and there was facts and some and somehow now this is something that you can dispute. Can you imagine Obama just saying things that weren't true? Yeah, I mean he never did. But even I see this in our politics here. Yes. This this and this, you know, this somehow created this atmosphere that you're not answerable or that you can just, you know, avoid being Scott questioned Morrison about things. Scott is following the Trump line, I think. Well, I, it's something I see happening globally and yes. I'm really concerned. Like, as someone who's dedicated my life to telling the truth, I feel like it's so devalued these days. And that's just so concerning to me. Um, yeah. And that I explore these themes in the book and what this means, you know, what world we're creating and and how we all need to stand up and, and refuse to let this impunity reign. And you could think that these horrible things in the Middle East, they've got nothing to do with me, they don't affect our lives. But what happens is when you break all the rules, then it's really hard to enforce them anywhere. Yeah. You know, how, how are we going to confront something as intangible as the climate emergency and global warming when something as tangible as, you know, Syrians being massacred for nine years live on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube when there was no global action on that. So this is why we desperately need the rules because it's going to affect all of us mm. when, when the impunity just reigns all over. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I remember when I was at school, when I was very young, and I first heard about the genocide, the um, the killing of, of the Jews by Hitler, and really in history and just being so shocked that this could have happened. And my question day in, day out while I was reading about it was, where was everybody? Where was the world? And now I look at what's happening in Syria and you look at what's happening to many parts of the world and you think, where was our response? I mean, how mm. will history look at us? And this is what this book is is full of people who wanted to be on the right side of history, refused yeah. to stand back, look the other way. They all, a lot of them risked everything. Mm. Some of them lost everything to mm. be on the right side of history mm. and to fight for what was good and what was right. And that's why I get so inspired by them. Um, but... This is this is what I get so concerned about because last year I covered a story for Four Corners on Xinjiang, which is where the Chinese Communist Party is locking up one million of its own citizens, Muslim Uyghur citizens in the northern part of China. And it's the largest incarceration of people on the basis of their religion since the Holocaust. So this idea of never again, I mean, it, it continues to happen. And I think it's really hard for us to turn around and say to Beijing, you can't do this. This is, you know, outrageous, illegal, breaking all international law. When we have turned a blind eye to such horror in the Middle East in the past decade and when we haven't spoken out loud enough, when, you know, countries that we work closely with have committed war crimes. You know, we, we we do talk to Saudi Arabia. We try and sell them weapons. But, you know, they've, they're carrying out a horrific war in Yemen. Um, we're very close to the Israeli government. And, you know, Gaza is one of the saddest places you'll ever go. Mm. Um, there, there's an occupation in the West Bank that's gone on now for more than 50 years. So it's really hard for us to come from a high moral ground. And in our region, call for democracy, you know, T tell Xi Jinping in Beijing, you know, you can't do that. When we, when it just reeks of hypocrisy and double standards, you know, mm. you you care about human rights, you care about war crimes, you have to care about whoever it happens to, because this is the thing. It's really hard now to to uphold and have deterrence when governments break these these mm. rules. I mean, that's just, you know, you have all these theories and it sounds complicated, you know, international relations and all that. It's rules. There's a, there's a set of rules for how the world is meant to work and it's it's not being um, enforced because at the moment. Well, who's going to enforce it? Trump? Well, back, this is the thing. Um, America has retreated and they lost a lot of credibility through that Iraq war. Mm. The UN is underfunded. Um, and well, that's because conservative governments don't even believe it in anyway. You know, so the yeah. madness, like Scott Morrison yeah. and what's the bozo called in the UK? What's his name? That's Boris. <laughs> Boris. Yeah. You know, I mean, these people don't value that. Well, I'm, it, it's, you know, I, I think that Australia is perfectly positioned to play a stronger role in the United Nations. We are a very wealthy country, not not all yeah. of us. You know, some people yeah. do struggle here, but many of us have a very high standard of living. Um, and I, we are perfectly positioned to, to try and lead in this area. But we don't have the right we, government. Well, you know, Scott Morrison gave a speech last October where he talked about negative globalism, you know, and this was clearly an attack on the UN system. And it just sends a wrong message to our region when we, you know, are trying to say that 
you know, a dictator in Cambodia like Hun Sen who hasn't allowed there to be free elections for 30 years. I mean, what kind of message does it send when we're attacking the UN? You know, what Mm. message does it send to Beijing when we're asking them to stop locking up Uyghurs? But is it a coincidence that it's only conservative governments that attack the UN? What is that? I mean, is, I, is, is that true? Firstly, I don't want to be putting fake news out there, but it seems to me, I haven't checked this, but is it true? It seems more likely that a conservative government is go- not going to support a global solution. Well, conservative politics always um, of, often comes from positions of smaller government, you know, smaller yeah. government intervention in society generally. What I think is really sad is that somehow human rights was put in the basket of the left, you yes. know, all the progressives. I mean, yes. there are some amazing conservative politicians who have stood up for human rights over the years, and it doesn't happen as often anymore. And I, I would like to see that because I don't think you have to Malcolm follow... Malcolm Fraser. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, and and conservative politicians have been very loud about what's happening in Xinjiang to the Uyghurs and, and in talking to Beijing, but th- that's the problem, is that they, they didn't do that to the Saudis, you know, and they don't say that to Israel. Mm-hmm. So this is where they, they lose the high moral ground. We, mm-hmm. If we're going to speak out about these things. We have to um, we have to be consistent because we our hypocrisy is easily called out. Um, no, I don't understand the system so well. So I just want to present a scenario to you and how would that play out if it was played out properly? So the killing of the journalist. Jamal Khashoggi. The, yeah. Jamal Khashoggi. I mean, absolutely blatant, all-out mm. murder. Now, if that was to play out, and somebody, I mean, you know, does someone get charged for his murder? Well, How does I mean, that happen on the an Saudi government ha- has said that they have put people on trial, but the CIA concluded it was Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, that, right. that ordered the killing. And the G20, one of the most important global meetings that can take place, is happening in Riyadh this year, the capital of Saudi Arabia. So this is the problem, is that there has been no real punishment for what MBS did. And that new prince in Saudi Arabia, he was behind the beginning of the Yemen war, a horrific conflict, which I talk about in the book. I was fortunate enough to go to Yemen in 2016 and report from there before the Saudis blocked journalists from entering. They literally stopped a plane that had a BBC journalist on it and wouldn't let the plane leave. So they have been trying to stop that story from getting out. But what's happening to Yemen, thanks to the very brave Yemeni journalists and human rights defenders on the ground, we're still getting the evidence of what's going on there. But, you know, it's it's not just his horrific crackdown on dissidents like Jamal Khashoggi and upholding uh, a gender apartheid system. The treatment of women in Saudi Arabia is still shocking. There's been some developments under MBS, mm. but it's still something from hundreds of years ago. So th- this is a guy that should be called out every day on what he does, but yet we work the, with him, yeah, yeah. And, and the G20 is going to be there. But didn't recently he's been eliminating or putting in jail anybody who opposes him or his Did I read that recently? Yeah, and I talk in, in, in the book about um, these incredibly brave Saudi women activists mm. who um, are still sitting there in mm. jail. There's an amazing woman called Lejane Hathlul who was one of the first women to campaign um, for women to drive in Saudi Arabia. Mm. Um, you know, she... It's hard to describe her level of bravery and courage when you you know you're up against a system like that and yet you still, you know, get in your car and take a video of you going mm. driving and say, hey, you know, we want our freedom. Um, and Lejeune's sitting in jail. And, um, yeah, I was lucky enough to meet so many Saudi, brave Saudi women when I did a story about Rahaf, the young Saudi teenager who was um, 
famously fled for her freedom last January and I actually was stuck in the hotel room with Rahaf and spent quite a lot of time with her in Bangkok and documented that story and the behind the scenes of what went on is the last chapter in this book and to me, Rahaf is an amazing example of how one person can really make a difference. Mm. You know, by Rahaf standing up and the world hearing her story of uh, the reality of life for Saudi women, she could, you know, she she just managed to ruin all of the regime's kind of PR campaigns. You know, oh, MBS is modernising the country and nah, like mm. Rahaf just told her how it is, you know, showed her case, told the world um, how she was treated and she's managed to help um, develop some incredible new changes in Saudi Arabia through through, through her getting her story out. Mm. So And through her courage. Yeah, incredible courage. I want to talk um, about how you got to where you are, Sophie. So tell me, um, where did you grow up and how is it that you came to be a journalist at such a young age, you know, starting <laughs> at 18? Um, i from West Australia, so yeah. I, I grew up... Um, uh, my dad was in Fremantle. My mum lived up closer to Perth. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, I, I just read a book at high school about East Timor and was horrified because, you know, I was in like this extension social sciences and history class and I couldn't believe that, that I had never been taught about this. You know, a third of a, the population had been killed, you know, people mm. were tortured. Like the Indonesian, the horrors of the Indonesian occupation were not something that were taught at a, you know, public high school in West Australia, and I just got so angry that I hadn't um, been informed about this and really admired these journalists who snuck in and, you know, really got that evidence of what was happening in Timor out. And I wanted to be just like them, I decided, and um, kind of started running around with a video camera and one thing led to another and, um, yeah, I ran off and joined the SBS newsroom when I was 18. and In, in, in Sydney. No, oh, in, in Sydney. Sydney, yeah, and right. I'd never... Like I first, you know, when you're from Perth and you first come to Sydney, it's very intimidating. Yeah, you, you, it's you overwhelming, just, yeah. You think you'll never, ever be able to possibly find, you know, like I was too scared to drive or anything. It was just huge. <laughs> How old were you? Uh, I first came to Sydney, I was um, I was 16 when I first came and I moved here when I was 18, yeah. yeah. It was very... And what did your parents think about that at the time? I'm one of four daughters, middle child, so you have to do anything to get attention, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they've always supported me a huge amount. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, they, they're they not journalists. My dad's a footy coach and my mum's a physio um, and they've always, you know, they always just taught me and my sisters to kind of um, just follow our dreams really and so I couldn't have asked for better support for my family. Okay, so tell me what was your first job as, at SBS? Uh, so I worked for an um, insight program before it was kind of the talk show it is now. It used to be a bit more like 7.30 report right. and they were getting all of their journalists to become video journalists. So it was actually because of budget cuts. They were getting rid of the camera crews and training journalists to use video cameras. So they were sending out all their journalists around the country to film these little current affairs stories for what was then a once-a-week national current affairs program. And they didn't have anyone in West Australia. And my uni had written an article about how I'd gone to East Timor and made a documentary. Right. And someone at SBS somehow read a copy of the Curtin University a newsletter that talked about me using this new technology, these mini DV cameras to go and film this doco. I mean, you know, doco yeah. inverted commas because it was yeah. like my own little project. It wasn't, yeah. no one had commissioned this documentary. Um, and this guy from SBS just called me up 
Mike Carey and was like, oh, you know, do you, do you want to come work I for know me? Mike. Yeah. So yeah. he gave me my first job when I was uh, 18 and I was a first year uni student in Perth. Yeah. And I was like, sure, I'll be in Sydney next week. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I um, never uh, went back to uni and also, to, you know, left oh, Perth. Oh, you didn't go back to uni? No, I didn't. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dropout. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's... A, I think it's good for us that you're a dropout because <laughs> well, you're able to tell these stories. Well, this is it. This is not a book for experts. Yeah. You know, it's not for Middle East well, buffs it, or international relations, whatever. No, it's a very simple explanation of the things you see on the news, how, why, and who, you yeah. know, who they happen to, and yeah. the amazing personal stories. Like, this is full of love. There's lots of love stories in this it's, book. It's beautiful. It's a human um, story book. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. Um, okay, so you were at SBS because you've won many awards here. So let's talk about the first award you won. Um, the, the Young TV Journalist of the Year. That was in 2010. Was that for a particular role, a particular story? That, um, yeah, that was for an investigation I did in Gaza. Um, Tell me yeah. about that. Yeah, I mean, look, Gaza is, it's like another planet, you know. There's, I've been. Yeah, it's mm. just, um, it's heartbreaking because uh, since the blockade began after Hamas took control of that little strip of land, um it's just, it is like the world's largest prison. Yeah. And uh, these days only humanitarians and journalists can can visit and no one inside can get out easily. It's very difficult. You have to get either Israeli security permission or Egyptian security permission to leave leave through the borders. And um, it's, it's, it's just a place where dreams are capped because yeah. it, it, it's only 42 kilometres long, it's 12 kilometres wide and it's just poverty stricken, you know. A large percentage of the population rely on aid to survive. Hamas has been in control now for more than a decade. Um, they don't allow any opposition or, or dissidents. Um, you know, you, you'll get arrested for criticising them. And then every, you know, f- five or so years, there'll be a horrific war with Israel. And hundreds of civilians die. I mean, the yeah. 2014 war happened not long before I arrived in the Middle East in 2015. And you know, more than 500 children were killed. Mm. Gazan children were killed in that conflict. Mm. Um, you know, I, I I was there just after the 2009 war in Gaza. Um, again, countless civilian deaths, mm. the, the strip decimated. So it's, it's a really hard place. I had this, um, I don't know why, but I had this, I don't know, vision or this impression, that's a better word, that refugee camps were a place of refuge. Mm. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. And then I, you know, there's a particular writer called Majok Tulba. Um, he's a Sudanese refugee. And I remember when I first spoke to him, he said to me that he was writing about people that work in refugee camps and he only found out that they have passports and they could fly away and why would they be there? Mm. And it struck me for the first time that they can't leave because they don't have any papers. Mm. Um, and so they're really, they're prisons, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, that was the thing about visiting Yemen is that the Saudis had begun this blockade, so it was similar to what was happening to Gaza, but this was 20 million people, you know, the whole of northern Yemen where the Houthi rebels are in charge. Um, the, the Saudis were blocking uh, shipping from going there, uh, so this created a huge famine, 80,000 Yemeni children died of starvation. Just horrific. And it's it's hard to imagine the scale of some of these atrocities when you compare it to the level of attention it receives. I mean, I... Very little. Yeah. You barely hear about Yemen these days. And, you know, I kept, you know, after they um, we were 
only allowed on the ground there for two weeks and then got kicked out by the Houthi rebels, actually, because we filmed the funeral of a child soldier that they didn't want us to film. Um, but then after we left, then the Saudis shut the airport, you know, and for three years, the main airport to the capital, Sana'a, was closed. And you you don't you don't often hear about this. Um, and, uh, you know, there's the United Arab Emirates are part of that coalition working with Saudi Arabia to yeah. conduct that war in Yemen. And we have a very close relationship with them. Well, we they a, keep talking about how advanced they are yeah, these days. We have an yeah. Australian military base in the UAE. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it's really frustrating to see um, the fact that we can have these normal relations with these countries. Um, it's, it's, it's horrifying. What's the solution? The, the solution, I think, is we need to lead from the heart and actually care. Yeah. Because I think nothing yeah, changes when when it's just like a, a theory or an approach or an attempt. It's like, no, you actually do have to care. Yeah. And so um, this is what I'm kind of uh, my mantra that I that I try and, um, you know, that I talk about in the book and I talk, try and talk about every day is just how you, you think that things won't affect you, that somehow that, you know, these horrible things happening in the Middle East have got nothing to do with you. But this is our world. You know, this is, and, and I came back from the Middle East kind of just absolutely in de- despairing about the state of our world. And I have two sons, you know, and and I just think we, we have to urgently change our response because right now it is terrifying out there and we can all start in our everyday lives making a difference. Because the, the book is full of how people have made huge differences, just one person. Yeah. And when you look at what's happening here in Australia, even there's, there's so much work to do, you know, yeah. on a human rights level, environmental level, Indigenous rights level. There, there is so much work to do. And I just really want this book to be a call to arms to ask, you know, what are you doing? Because yeah. that's what it takes. You know, yeah. it, it takes us all making sacrifices to make this world a better place. Do you know, it's funny you should say that. Um, I get, you know, on iTunes you get comments about your podcast and um, I've had, I think, one or two comments. One I remember quite clearly saying, you know, I really love this podcast, but I wish Cheryl would keep her political opinions to herself. <laughs> and um, And that I thought, People in this country are so affluent that they shy away from the hard conversations. Mm. I think that that's what it's about. And I think, yes, there are poor people here and there are people that are struggling and people living on the poverty line. But I, I do think, like you said, that we're at an affluent country. And when I see what's happened as a reaction to the coronavirus and people fighting each other in the supermarket over toilet paper, I think we haven't suffered hardship, you know, as a people, yeah. have we? It's funny because... Um there's this one story that really has always stuck with me over the years, and it's in the book. And it's about two weeks I spent on an Italian Navy ship yeah. when they went out into the Mediterranean to rescue thousands and thousands of refugees. And they re- rescued like 170,000 in a space of a few months because there was a, uh, a new government in Italy and they said, well, you know, we're not going to let these refugees drown. We're going to start this operation called Operation Mare Nostrum and we're going to send our men down there and women and we're going to save these people. And it was amazing to watch. And when the Italians picked up these refugees from the water, you know, there were Syrians, Eritreans, Sudanese, yeah. and they, they used to say on their radios to each other, uh, like, uh, the guests have arrived, the guests, the new guests have arrived. And I was just blown away. Like, you know, we, we call people illegals and yeah. all that, and they were calling them guests. Yes. 
And and when I interviewed the sailors, the Italian sailors and Marines who'd served in Iraq and Timor and had done all of these amazing peacekeeping operations over the years, and they all said that this was their favourite mission they'd ever done. And they said, look, we Italians, we know what it's like to flee for your life. We, we've, you know, a lot of our grandparents left to go to America or Australia to look for better futures. And we really know what it's like and we're never going to forget that. And I, I and I do think sometimes in Australia we forget how lucky we are. You know, I mean, look at Tampa. Yeah, I mean, look at what happened then. I mean, I think you know, I've said this a million times on this podcast that John Howard introduced hatred in this country. You know, that we became fearful of something that was really not fearful. That it was humanitarian. I think that we don't appreciate how lucky we are. I, I think that is something that, um, you know, we, we've been so fortunate and. We really need to use some of this privilege that we have, I think, and to lead because mm. the, the world needs a lot of help right now. And, you know, I, I, I look at a country like Norway and oh, wow. um, they go out of their way to lead in areas of human rights. They and do. and I've seen, like, in the Middle East, there's this amazing organisation called the Norwegian Refugee Council and they're everywhere and they're just popping up doing life-saving work. And it, it's incredible, like... The, the, the UN won't be there, the Red Cross won't be there, but there'll be these Norwegians in the desert, you know, giving water to people who've just fled Fallujah when, you know, ISIS was I'm going um, to get their details. Heart. They're an amazing organisation. I'm going to get their details. They really are. And, and I often, you know, and they're just this people because I meet them all, all the time. There's all these amazing Norwegians everywhere. And I just think, you know, we could be like that. You know, we're, we're in that same kind of quality of life index up yeah. there with Norway. Um, we've made a lot of money off fossil fuels the same way they have. Um, we have a lot of in common in that country. And we, you know, we're a small, like a middle power that could lead. And I, I would love to see us do that. And I'm just hoping that more of us will just think, what can I do in my life to make this world a better place? Oh, God, I hope you're right. Sophie McNeil. Inshallah. That's the <laughs> Inshallah. best word. <laughs> exactly. Inshallah. <laughs> Sophie McNeil, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.